Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, October 7th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. President Trump continuing to battle the coronavirus as the outbreak centered around the White House grows. Top aide Stephen Miller testing positive while top Pentagon officials reveal they are now at risk. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning about the coronavirus death toll, saying that a new surge this winter could raise the death toll to more than 400,000 here in the U.S. And amidst chaos in the White House, Vice President Pence set to take on Senator Kamala Harris at tonight's vice presidential debate, a look at the issues and coronavirus precautions. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with the latest on the rapidly developing situation at the White House. The number of COVID cases linked to the president and his inner circle continues to grow. At least 24 people testing positive so far and almost the whole Joint Chiefs of Staff going into quarantine. The coronavirus outbreak inside the White House still growing, with senior Trump policy advisor Stephen Miller becoming the latest to report a positive test. He was part of a debate prep session with the president last week. He has been uh, self-quarantining for five days, but nevertheless tested positive based on a prior exposure. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the spread of the virus there was avoidable. That is a reality right there. And every day that goes by, more people are popping up that are infected. It's not a hoax. It's an unfortunate situation when you see something like that, because that could have been prevented. The COVID outbreak now reaching the Pentagon. The Coast Guard's number two officer, Admiral Charles Ray, testing positive. Now almost the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff, including the military's most senior general, Mark Milley, and other top officers are in quarantine. It's unclear exactly how Ray contracted the virus, but he did attend a White House event for Gold Star families. That event held indoors about a week and a half ago, most attendees not wearing masks. The Pentagon insists there is no change to the operational readiness or mission capability of the U.S. armed forces. The number of people testing positive who have been near the president or at the White House in recent days spiked to 24. His military aide, who carries the nuclear football, a presidential valet who serves his meals, plus two more staffers in the press office, also testing positive. Aides insist White House staff wear full PPE, and those who have direct contact with the first family are tested daily. Because now, as the second presidential debate inches closer, former VP Joe Biden says he'll listen to advice from scientists about whether it's safe to attend. But the president says he's ready to debate. According to the New York Times, President Trump was not being tested for COVID-19 every day before he contracted the virus, and questions still remain about whether he had been tested before the September 29th debate with Joe Biden in Cleveland, Ohio. Meanwhile, a new Ixios Ipsos poll suggests that more people are likely to wear a mask following President Trump's coronavirus diagnosis. Roughly 21% of those polled said they are now more likely to use a face covering and maintain a physical distance of at least six feet from others. 
For most people, though, the news hasn't changed their behaviors and views. 77% said there has been no change in their likelihood to wear a mask or physically distance. And as President Trump continues to recover inside the White House, the specifics of his condition are still unclear. This as the president slammed the brakes on stimulus talks until after the election. Edwin Pitti has the latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Andrea. During one of his latest updates to the media, the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, saying that the president is doing real well and also confirming reports that Trump wanted to go to the Oval Office yesterday and might go there today. Take a listen. The president continues to work. Uh, he's in uh, very good health. Uh, we're, we're pleased with uh, his progress. And uh, I had a briefing last night with Doc Conley late last night, and uh, we'll do so again this morning. Now, Meadows also saying this morning that he and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin were actively considering a stimulus measure to send another round of checks. But talking about the stimulus package as if the negotiations between the White House and Democrats in Capitol Hill weren't stuck enough, the president halted stimulus talks. In a series of tweets less than 24 hours after being released from Walter Reed Hospital, Trump accused the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, of failing to negotiate in good faith that after she rejected an opening bid from Mnuchin in their last round of talks. In a tweet, the president said, and I quote, I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election, when immediately after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small businesses. Democrats in the Senate reacted. It's very clear that the president and Mitch McConnell uh, do not put protecting American people as a priority. They make it so plain. Now, Trump's announcement had an impact on the stock market, where the Dow Jones closed with 376 points down. Right after that, the president tried to switch his position and offered to sign a legislation to send a second round of $1,200 checks to individuals. But he wants to do the benefit on its own and not approve the $2.4 trillion bill proposed by Pelosi. This morning, Meadows said that the White House uh, are willing to go above their $1.6 trillion proposal, but not all the way to the $2.4 trillion bill from the Democrats. So, Andrea, it is very unclear what will happen in the future, but the reality is that we are only 27 days away from the election and millions of unemployed Americans continue to suffer because of the lack of action between Congress and the White House. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for all those developments, and we will continue to watch very closely. Joining me now is Laura Brown. She's director and also a professor at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Thanks so much for joining us today, Laura. Thanks for having me on. So the top strata of the military is now in quarantine. Does this make the U.S. vulnerable in any way? Well, I think the Pentagon statement is right. We have our sort of mission-ready capacities in every way um, that we could imagine. Though it seems um, that it would be problematic for our um, you know, national security team and our military officials not to have their regular meetings, what we see is that our government is now operating the way many Americans are. They are working virtually and they are doing the work um, that is tasked with them, either from their homes or from a safe place where they are quarantining. 
And I think when you understand that the American government since 9-11 has really been able to respond quickly um, on a military standpoint, then I don't think there's much to worry about. We, we shouldn't forget that Air Force One um, is completely outfitted um, to handle essentially a terrorist threat or anything that w came about. So everything around our executive branches are prepared um, to move in a moment's notice. You wrote about presidential character in the book titled Amateur Hour, Presidential Character, and the Question of Leadership. In that book, you argue that the success of a president can be evaluated before they step into the White House and that their character doesn't change while in office. What is it in President Trump's character and what does his response to his own diagnosis show about him? So really what I talked about is that good leaders are able to lead in a variety of different dimensions that show different aspects of one's character. They can take action that might show their strength. They can also show emotion, which may reveal a sense of compassion or empathy. They can also um, step back and ask questions and reveal a sense of curiosity about a policy issue or something that needs greater expertise. And the biggest issue that we have with President Trump is he really only knows one mode of leadership. He only knows how to portray strength and to confront things in what he believes is a courageous manner. And this is where American, the American public feels that there's just a disconnect. He, they feel that he has not asked enough questions about the coronavirus, and he has not shown enough empathy for those who have suffered um, the effects of the virus. In a tweet, uh, the president called off coronavirus relief negotiations like we just mentioned moments ago, and later on he backtracked. How concerned should the public be about the president's whims at the moment? Well, I think what we're seeing is that the president is trying to do anything he believes will help him um, get a sure footing as we go into this election. So I think when you understand that the president kind of pulled back in that tweet on COVID relief bill, what he was trying to do was gain some control over the negotiations that he felt that he had been losing while he was perhaps in the hospital or his aides were negotiating without him. And then I think what you saw was an immediate realization that that was a um, kind of tactic that was not going to help his presidency. And there was much confusion on Capitol Hill around it among his allies. And there was also a backlash among the public who is very much wanting to see this president and this government enact additional stimulus and relief for those who are suffering the effects of the COVID-19 virus. Before we finish this interview, one last question. Early voting is already underway, and we're in the dark about the president's real condition. What will happen to the general election if he is incapacitated or seriously ill? Let's say he worsens um, in the next coming days. 
So what we would see is that people would still vote for a Trump-Pence ticket because it is too late to remove their names from most states' ballots. But then what you would also see is likely an emergency meeting of the Republican National Committee to substitute their nominees, and they would likely direct their electors in the December meetings that take place, um, the Electoral College, to vote for those new nominees. Now, all of that could create controversy were the president um, to win, and it could create a flurry of lawsuits. Well, thank you so much for your time, Laura Brown, director and professor at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court says President Donald Trump's accountant must turn over his tax records to a New York state prosecutor. The second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan ruled Wednesday saying a stay of a lower court decision will remain in effect. So Trump's lawyers can appeal the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. A Justice Department spokesperson said the department was reviewing the ruling. And now to the latest on the coronavirus pandemic here in the U.S. More than 43,000 cases recorded on Tuesday. And Dr. Fauci warning deaths could nearly double by the end of this year. This as social media platforms flag posts by President Trump for spreading misinformation. Lorraine Cáceres has more. On Tuesday, another 43,562 cases of coronavirus recorded in the U.S. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning the death toll could very easily climb to more than 400,000 by the end of the year. The models tell us that if we do not do the kinds of things that we're talking about in the cold of the fall and the winter, we could have from 300,000 to 400,000 deaths. That would be so tragic if that happens. Meanwhile, while Facebook removing a post after the president falsely claimed the flu is more deadly than COVID-19, saying many every year, sometimes over 100,000, and despite the vaccine, die from the flu. In reality, COVID-19 has killed more people so far than the past five flu seasons combined. In just eight months, almost 211,000 people have died of coronavirus in the U.S. In the past five years since the 2015 season, 178,000 people have died of the flu. Around the country, more than half of states are reporting increased COVID-19 cases. There are a number of us who fear that over the next 6 to 12 weeks, we could see a very substantial increase in COVID-19 cases that would far surpass even the peak that we saw earlier this summer. Some leaders are now implementing new measures. Protests erupted Tuesday night in Brooklyn in reaction to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's plan to address high coronavirus rates in certain areas, closing down businesses and schools again. Meanwhile, Alaska, Utah and Kentucky just saw their highest seven-day average of new cases. Now's our test. Test of values, test of faith. Are we willing to live for other people? And Governor Kemp in Georgia, who since the beginning of this pandemic has been against mask wearing and closures, very apprehensive, is now urging residents to be prepared to take care of themselves for the fall and winter in order to prevent a potentially devastating twindemics, referring, referring to COVID-19 and the flu. Andrea, back to you. Lorraine, overall, some worrisome news there. Thank you.
More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Facebook on Tuesday classified the QAnon conspiracy theory movement as dangerous and began removing Facebook groups and pages, as well as Instagram accounts that claim to represent this group. The step escalates an August policy that bans a third of QAnon groups for promoting violence but still allowed most to stay. Instead of relying on user reports, Facebook staff now will treat QAnon like other militarized bodies seeking out and deleting groups and pages. Meanwhile, another top story we're following today, senior Justice Department officials in the Trump administration were personally involved in the separation of migrant children at the border. That allegation comes from a draft Justice Department report obtained by the New York Times. In May of 2018, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions was quoted telling prosecutors, quote, we need to take away the children, end quote. Days later, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein specified that children should be separated regardless of age. The Times report sheds new light on the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy in effect from May to late June of 2018. The policy calls for a criminal prosecution of adults crossing the border and separating children from their families. And is U.S. Customs and Border Protection trying to have files destroyed? The agency has requested that the National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA, approve the destruction of complaints, but over 100 organizations have opposed this decision, citing mounting evidence of CBP lack of accountability. Under the Federal Records Act, NARA approves the destruction of records if it determines they lack sufficient administrative legal research or other value to warrant their continued preservation by the government. All eyes will be on Utah tonight as Vice President Mike Pence and California Senator Kamala Harris face each other for the first and only vice presidential debate. Pedro Rojas is on the ground in Salt Lake City with a closer look at what we can expect. Pedro. As you say, Andrea, definitely they said the stage is set here in Utah at the University of Utah, specifically in this place, the Kingsbury Hall. This will be the place where both candidates will meet up this tonight. And as we get closer to that, a lot of things have been worked out. One of them was the plexiglass used to separate both candidates in the stage. That was something that was worked out pretty much overnight. Uh, up until late last night, the, 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 the campaign of Vice President Mike Pence was opposing to the use of the plexiglass. But definitely afterwards and a lot of discussion and what have you, it, it, it all got worked out. And today we can report that definitely there will be plexiglass separating both candidates at plexiglass on each side of the stage. And both candidates will really be at least 12 feet apart, as well as the moderator, which is a member of the USA Today, a, a, a member of the newspaper. Also, we were able earlier today to speak with a, a, a political science professor from the University of Utah. And we asked him how he see 
this debate tonight. Let's take a listen. This is a critical time in the nation's history. It's a very complicated political moment. Obviously, uh, the COVID pandemic is on everybody's mind, but so is uh, the economy. Issues of migration continue to be important. There's a lot to debate. And I think it's, it's the responsibility of both candidates tonight to explore the differences that each party has uh, with respect to the economy, to the handling of the, of the pandemic, um, and what kind of solutions does each, uh, each campaign have uh, for the future of the country. As you can see, the expectation is about content. And one of the things that both candidates have said so far is that they are willing to go into policy. Many, many critics and local politicians in the state of Utah have said that they expect that there will be less bickering, less personal attacks, and more policy discussion tonight. This will be a 90-minute event as well. It will be the only vice presidential uh, debate in this, in this race. And one of the things that many people is expecting is the experience of both politicians. As we know, Kamala Harris is a former state uh, attorney general in the state of California, is currently a senator for the state of California. She's been in politics for a long while, as well as Mike Pence, which was also a governor, a former congressman, and has been in office at least for four years as a vice president of the country. So a lot of the politicians and local stakeholders believe that tonight would be a much more dense and content debate here in Utah as well. Uh, there is a lot of security in this place. They, the entire place is taken by the Secret Services. Everybody has to wear a mask, and everyone that is inside the venue has been had to be tested negative for COVID in order to get inside. Back to you, Andrea. More precautions will be taking place tonight, that's for sure, and I'm sure the American people want to hear more content. Thanks so much, Pedro Rojas, for that report from Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.